Hello, we're uh, back uh, with episode, uh, I think it's now episode three of Papa's uh, Pod. Um, flying solo today. Um, but after the first few episodes, especially the first episode, got some good feedback, got some feedback that, hey, you know, Papa, this stuff's a little bit over my head. I don't need to know about, you know, Velcade Revlimid. I'm just a student. I'm just an internal medicine doc. And I just need to know the basics. I need to know how to take care of patients. I don't give about do a crap about all this chemo stuff and dosing. So I'm hearing you, okay? I'm hearing you and I'm gonna provide uh, some educational material um, that's more suited for your level of training. So this is more designed for the medical students, for the internists, for the hospitalists, or for anyone with an interest, first year fellows, uh, taking care of patients with acute leukemia. We're gonna go over uh, the management of acute leukemia, not the chemotherapy, but how to take care of these sick patients when they're admitted to the hospital, okay? Um, so we're going to go over a case two and also a new edition, and I'm computer illiterate, uh, so hopefully this turns out okay, where I have the slides going along with me talking. So we have some slides to go through a case. So we're going to take a case and we're going to walk through how I approach this case and go through some educational nuggets to help you getting, uh, help you taking care of these patients better uh, in the ward. So we have uh, a 19-year-old male. He's evaluated for recent onset fever and fatigue, dyspnea, some easy bruising and bleeding gums. Doesn't sound good. Uh, the medical and family histories are unremarkable. He takes no medications at home. On exam, he's febrile to 38.8. His blood pressure is 105 over 60. He's tacky to 120. He's breathing a little bit faster than 20 times a minute, up to 24. He's got some evidence of bleeding. His exam's normal. Who examines these patients anyways? Uh, you know, no. So he, he looks okay, but he's tachycardic. Uh, but we get those labs, okay? And his hemoglobin's 8.5. His white blood cell count's 104,000. His ANC is 600, his platelets are 17,000, and his LDH is 2,200, and his uric acid is 11.5. And then there's a blood smear that I showed you, but we're gonna go over that a little bit later, okay? So I think the, the first step I wanna take with this patient who's 19, febrile, um, anemic, neutropenic, thrombocytopenic, and with hyperleukocytosis, okay? Um, if this guy rolled into your primary care clinic, you saw him, you know, he's a young guy with fever, you're not, overly concerned, but then you get called back at two in the morning, you know, those lab callbacks, they're never during the day. It's at two in the morning and you're woken up by the lab technician and they're saying, doc, here's the labs. And then they hang up. So is this one you're going to go to sleep on, or is this one you're going to try to contact the patient? And, and the answer is you're going to do all you can to contact this patient and tell them to go to the emergency room immediately. I'm going to go over a case later in this talk where maybe somewhat similar labs, not an emergency room visit. So step one is this, this patient needs emergency room level of care. At the very least, you must recognize that he's having a fever and a neutropenia and is neutropenic. So that's, that's an emergency along with the hyperleukocytosis and thrombocytopenia. Okay, so um, we're gonna go through kind of the steps of how to stabilize this patient, okay? But the first thing I wanna go over is, you know, on a board, you would be given this kind of presentation Okay, and they're going to give you a little bit more, maybe a bone marrow examination, um, shows all these cells that are myeloperoxidase positive, they're large and ugly called blast, and then the flow comes back with this soup of numbers, CD3334 positive, 117 positive, negative for TDT, CD10, CD19, and they're going to ask you what the most likely diagnosis is. Now, this is appropriate, I think, for medical students, internal medicine level, clearly for oncology fellow level board, and, you know, one is, you can know all these numbers and know the diagnosis fast, but who's remembering flow markers? You don't need to know flow markers as a medical student, or, you know, I don't think you do, uh, uh, other than maybe a few. 
Uh, and you're definitely going to forget them when you're in practice, unless you're an oncologist or hematologist. But at the very least, we can kind of figure out what's going on here, right? I mean, is this an acute or chronic presentation? Uh, it's clearly not chronic. This was a guy that was healthy and all of a sudden not healthy, okay? So we can go look at that diagnosis list and we can already eliminate a few of these diseases like C, CLL, that, that doesn't present in a young person all of a sudden acutely. Hodgkin lymphoma, Hodgkin lymphoma is a little bit more, it's a little bit less aggressive than this, usually presenting with lymphadenopathy, not such profound cytopenias and, uh, and neutropenia, that would be atypical. And CML, you know, newly diagnosed CML usually doesn't present like this also, usually presents with a high white blood cell count like this case, but not with thrombocytopenia, not with neutropenia. Now, if this were blast crisis CML, uh, that would potentially be a possibility, but CML doesn't really present like this. So this is either A or B. So even without knowing all these little numbers, CD 33, 34, 117, you could get away with at least a 50, 50 uh, uh, guess of what this, this possibly is, AML or ALL. And as we'll see when we get through this case, this is AML. The markers are CD33 and 117, which are myeloid markers, myeloperoxidase. That's also a huge hint. And then CD34 is the blast marker, which you would see on both AML and ALL, okay? So as I showed, just with knowing all those simple things that we talked about, you can all you already get rid of quite a few of the diagnoses. And then as you see this, I, you know, I, I circle or square this blast. And how do I know it's a blast? It's much larger than the red blood cells, right? Look at the size of that compared to a red blood cell. So a lot of normal white blood cells like lymphocytes are about the size of a red blood cell. This is four or five times the size. It has a big nucleus. It also has a prominent nucleolus, which I circled. And then it has this little thing. It looks like a rod that's called an aura rod. So remember, if you see an aura rod, it's pathognomonic for AML. But if you don't see an aura rod, it doesn't mean it's not AML. So a lot of the times, AML and ALL blasts can look very similar, and you really can't tell them apart unless you do the flow cytometry or immunohistochemistry. But if you do see an all rod, you can slam dunk say it's AML with confidence, okay? So let's get back to our case. So that was just an example of a board question relating to this case, but how could we, how could we as, a, as a resident or a medical student to help take care of this patient? So when this patient rolls into the ER, um, the ER is gonna call up and admit this patient. So let's just assume the ER does nothing other than get the labs and admit to you. That, that wouldn't happen. I'm not bagging on the ER. They do great. They would do more than just that. But let's just assume this passes the ER. It's two in the morning. You're the night float intern dealing with this admission, or you're the hospitalist in the community. Uh, there's no inpatient leukemia service. That, that's a royalty that we see only in a select few academic hospitals. In most places, medicine is going to be taking care of this patient. So you got to really understand what to do. So let's, let's just take this patient and divide and conquer the problems. So I would say the first problem in this patient is um, hyperleukocytosis. So the white count's 104,000. I would call that hyperleukocytosis, okay? And we need a differential diagnosis for hyperleukocytosis. There's not many things that can cause a white count of 104,000, okay? There's really only a few things. And the first thing, let's just take the neoplastic bucket so acute leukemia, either AML or ALL, or chronic leukemia, CML or CLL. There's a few other very rare leukemias that can do this, but you don't need to know this outside of hematology. So my differential neoplastically is AML, ALL, CML, or CLL. As we talked earlier, I favor AML or ALL, given the acuity of this presentation and the other market cytopenias. Um, 
What else can cause this? It's not neoplastic. I mean, I guess maybe a leukemoid reaction. Um, this would be a pretty good leukemoid reaction, like in the setting of sepsis. Um, but usually they wouldn't be this neutropenic or thrombocytopenic. So that would be very unusual. Although I have seen some very high white counts in the setting of sepsis or a leukemoid reaction. Um, but again, usually the, there's a brisk neutrophil, uh, 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 mature neutrophils, uh, uh, not such a neutropenia like this so, and, and a thrombocytopenia. So I would say that's low on my differential. So, you know, that's my differential. What are we going to do for this? Well, we first, we need to figure out the diagnosis. Well, as an internist, or uh, uh, at the resident level, you need to know that this is something you call a hematologist for right away at two in the morning so they can help you start figuring out the diagnosis, okay? Um, so, you know, not wait till the next day, you're gonna wake me up or one of my colleagues up at two in the morning. Hopefully we weren't having any beer that night. We need to wake them up, okay? This isn't one that we need to sleep on. So you wake them up and their job is to figure out the diagnosis. Now. This talk isn't really about arriving at the diagnosis is how to manage the complications, but what the hematologist is gonna do is get a bone marrow biopsy, flow cytometry, a few other labs, and they'll be able to sort out the diagnosis really fast. And really the flow cytometry in a particular case like this, even of the peripheral blood, can tell the doctor whether it's AML or ALL really fast as long as the pathologist runs the test and, and does the, the, the and looks at the flow scatter plot, okay? So that's how the, the differential for the hyperleukocytosis, how we're gonna arrive at the diagnosis. But what else? I mean, are there any issues you can see with a white count of 104,000? And that brings me to my next um, 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 discussion matter. There's hyperleukocytosis and then there's leukostasis. These are not the same things, okay? Hyperleukocytosis is arbitrarily defined as a white count greater than 50,000. And there are many causes of that, which we just listed in the last few minutes. Leukocytosis is symptomatic hyperleukocytosis, meaning you have symptoms related to, related to the high white count. And what is what kind of symptoms? Uh, blurry vision, headaches, altered mental status, lethargy, frank like being obtunded, bleeding, shortness of breath. Uh, um, these are all things that can happen with symptomatic leukostasis. And who gets symptomatic leukostasis? Well, if you can imagine someone with acute myeloid leukemia with a high white blood count, so there's a crap ton of these white blood cells. And as they get to the small vasculature, the capillaries and all these vessels, they can start clogging them up. But these, these blasts are not just a lot of them, right? They're also big and they're also sticky. Blasts are big, immature, sticky things. So they like to clog up those vessels and cause leukostasis, okay? And you can die really fast with leukostasis. It's a hematologic emergency, okay? So that's what leukostasis is and that how it differs from hyperleukocytosis. And I wanna hammer home that point. Here is another example where someone comes to your clinic, they're 65, and they have a persistently elevated white count of 300,000, okay? And they come to your clinic feeling fine, and um, you get these labs back, and they come back with a white count of 300,000. They were fine in clinic. The rest of the counts are the fine. They're 65. You look at the blood smear, you see these small, more mature appearing. They're actually lymphocytes, some of these smudge cells. So this is an example of CLL, which you should recognize at the medical student level. And you know, this is not a hematologic emergency, although the white count's even higher than the other one. CLL, hardly ever, I've never seen it get symptomatic leukocytosis, hyper uh, leukostasis. So this is someone that if you get called at two in the morning and you can realize that it's CLL, if you have that knowledge level to do what we just did, they don't need a, an ER visit. They need to see a hematologist sometime in the future. I mean, we'll get them in in the next month or so because I know that people get anxious, but this isn't an emergency. 
And this is something that actually you can even observe. And we observe many, many patients with CLL, okay? So important distinction, okay? Hyperleukocytosis, leukostasis. So who gets leukostasis? There it is, AML, ALL, CML, CLL. That's the order. I, I don't, I've never seen it in CLL. To be honest, I really only see it in AML. I mean, I guess it's possible in ALL. Uh, um, that's who gets it. And again, why does AML get it? Why do the acute leukemias get it? Large cells, they're stickier. Large sticky myeloblasts, they're just sticky. And that's what causes this problem, okay? So getting back to the pathophysiology, which we talked about, I, I just discussed a lot of this, you know, again, it's these small, large vesicles, uh, large uh, uh, cell, immature cells that um, are deformable and they clog up the capillaries uh, in the lungs, in the brain, they cause hypoxemia, necrosis of tissues, uh, 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 and eventually bleeding and death, okay? So what is the treatment for leukostasis? So once you get this, it's really bad and you die fast, okay? So the treatment is treat the cancer and that's induction chemo. So what's the problem with that? Well, if this patient presents at two in the morning to the emergency room, you're just calling the hematologist is waking up and coming in. You are not going to have a diagnosis in a minute, okay? And the treatment for AML and ALL is very, very different. It would be a no-no to treat someone with AML with ALL-directed therapies and vice versa. So sometimes we can't get that diagnosis fast enough to treat. And so we have to do something to temporize measure. And there's really a few things you can do. Um, one is leukophoresis. And um, leukophoresis involves inserting a catheter, a central catheter, so the ICU docs or anyone's competent to insert those uh, central uh, catheters in. And um, you then need to call, uh, uh, at our hospital, it's nephrology, but uh, certain teams at different hospitals will manage uh, the phoresis unit. And it's exactly what it sounds like. They hook them up to like a dialysis-like machine and it filters off the white blood cells. Now there is no randomized data that shows this helps patients. It's not the highest level of evidence. Uh, this will lower the white count very, very fast. There is risks, including bleeding, electrolyte abnormalities. The fibrinogen can go down, so bleeding. Um, and um, so I reserve this only for the highest level of counts who are super symptomatic. Um, again, we've largely, we used to use this more, we use less of this. It still has its place. I, I, it's a clinical judgment and I just know it exists, okay? But something else you can do is hydria, which is a very effective cytoreductive agent. You can start one to four grams, even higher daily. You can do it in BID dosing, and that can effectively get the uh, white blood cell counts down very fast. You can also give steroids if it's acute lymphoblastic leukemia, but oftentimes you don't know if it's ALL or not. So usually I start hydria, you know, one to four grams. I slap them on it right away. If I'm freaking out or they're really crashing, I'll call renal. They're already in the ICU. And so again, consider leukophoresis, hydria, make sure hematologist getting that diagnosis as fast as rapidly possible so you can start treating of this hematologic malignancy. Again, only if they have symptomatic leukostasis, if it's just hyperleukocytosis without symptoms, you don't need to do any of this stuff. Okay, so back to our case. So problem one is the hyperleukocytosis uh, and, and with concerns for leukostasis. We're addressing that by getting the diagnosis, stabilizing the patient, considering hydria. Uh, excuse me, uh, giving them hydria, uh, considering leukophoresis. What's problem number two in this patient? Okay, problem number two in this patient. Well, look at those labs. The LDH is 4,200, the uric acid sky high. What are we concerned about? What happens when you have a huge amount of immature cells that are being made and they're dying? Okay, 
let's get some more labs. So K6.2, calcium's 6.7, low, phosphate's high. So this is tumor lysis syndrome. And let's remember tumor lysis syndrome is also a hematologic or oncologic emergency. All the electrolytes in the cells, because the cells die, they leave. So you get a high potassium, you get a high phosphate. Remember, phosphate's part of the uh, DNA backbone. Um, uric acid goes up as the purines get metabolized uh, in the cells. So you get high uric acid. LDH is just a, uh, a marker of cell death. Uh, um, and then the calcium goes down because the calcium binds actually phosphate in the peripheral and it goes down, okay? So all the electrolytes go up, but calcium that goes down. That's tumor lysis syndrome, okay? So who gets tumor lysis syndrome? It's similar to leukostasis, but you have to reverse the AML and ALL. So ALL is the most likely to get leukos, uh, um, um, is, is most likely to get leukos, uh, 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 tumor lysis syndrome. Uh, AML, really, I have in the slide, it should say aggressive lymphomas, like Burkitt's are, are very equally as likely to get uh, tumor lysis syndrome. It's rare in solid tumors, um, again, but you can see it in small cell lung cancer, sometimes germ cell tumors. And remember there's spontaneous tumor lysis, which is happening prior to treatment, like in this particular case. And then there's treatment induced tumor lysis. So someone with an aggressive lymphoma and you fire up the chemotherapy and then they start having tumor lysis, okay? So, you know, the pathophysiology, I won't go into the nitty gritty, uh, but the bottom line is these, these electrolyte abnormalities can cause um, um, arrhythmias, seizures, you can go into renal failure, and then it's really a vicious cycle. Once those uric acid stones block up the kidneys, then you get more hyperkalemia, hypocalcemia, hyperphosphatemia, and the patients can die from this. So um, yeah, it, it's a problem, okay? So what do we do to, to, to prevent this and to, and to treat this? So first, we need to be aware of who this happens in. So aggressive blood cancers like ALL, Burkitt lymphoma, AML. And um, the first thing you want to do is if, it, you know, prevention and treatment, you want to prevent it if it's not happening right before treatment or, and you want to treat it if it's already happening with aggressive measures. So these patients usually put on a lot of fluids. Normal saline is the fluid of choice. Okay. We often start allopurinol, which I'm going to go into in the next slide. And really you want to, this isn't someone you want to get an electrolyte panel once a day on. You don't want to get a BMP and wait till tomorrow. This is maybe someone you want to monitor electrolytes a little bit more frequently, maybe even up to QID four times a day. So these patients will be admitted, put on telemetry, serial electrolyte monitoring, strict uh, ins and outs, giving lots of normal saline. And again, you want to monitor that renal function closely. Once they start going into avert renal failure, you need to have a low threshold to call your nephrology friends because then it just gets harder and harder. You do not want to replace calcium, okay? Um, you don't need to do that, okay? Some doctors use phosphate binders. I don't find that super helpful. Um, you know, phosphate binders are for chronic conditions. You're not going to lower it pretty fast. But you do want to aggressively treat hyperkalemia, you know, with all the usual measures we get for hyperkalemia, sodium bicarb, insulin, uh, um, K-oxalate, those types of things. And again, if it gets too high and you're running into arrhythmias, you'll need to call nephrology, okay? And then, of course, treating the leukemia, which might make things worse at first before it gets better. Um, let's go in, though, to raspiricase versus allopurinol. So what happens is you have all these purines in the DNA, and they get metabolized uh, uh, into xanthine. And then there's an en enzyme called xanthine oxidase that uh, breaks it down to uric acid, and the uric acid builds, builds up and causes a problem. So when you give out, and this could be a board question, when you give allopurinol, it uh, inhibits xanthine oxidase. So it prevents the formation of uric acid, 
but the uric acid that's already made, it doesn't get rid of it, okay? So allopurinol is not gonna lower uric acid. It will prevent it from getting higher, okay? Um, so if the uric acid's 15, sprinkling on the allopurinol isn't gonna do anything, okay? Might even make things worse if it causes renal failure. So I'm not a huge fan of allopurinol, but raspiricase is something different. Raspiricase is a recombinant enzyme for urate oxidase, okay? And um, it chews up the uric uh, acid into something called allantoin, and we don't make this enzyme, so we don't got it, so we have to give it. And this is a, is a medication I use if they have frank tumor lysis. Uh, um, again, it's people always go, Dr. G, Papa Heem, you know, what is your threshold uric acid level for raspiricase? It's not a threshold, okay? So let me give you an example. If someone um, with chronic kidney disease, you know, comes into my office and you check a uric acid level, it might be 10, you know, but they're, they're not in tumor lysis. But if we have this particular scenario where, where their uric acid's even eight, but they have an LDH of a gazillion, their phosphate's up and they're in frank tumor lysis, it's only gonna get worse. So I'm gonna give raspiricase in that setting. And raspiricase is very expensive. So we have a, a dose modified algorithm at our hospital. And so you wanna be judicious with its use. You want you know, you don't want to over give it, but in the right scenario, it is appropriate. Okay. Usually you give one dose and it goes down really fast. It really is good at chewing up that uric acid. Any side effects with raspiricase, it can cause anaphylaxis. And then you're supposed to check a G6PD prior um, to giving it. Uh, it can cause, you know, in those with G6PD deficiency, it can lead to hemolysis. I will say we check it, but I've never like, you know, you got, if you're going to give it, you got to give it. You don't have the day or whatever it takes for the, the G6PD uh, uh, to come back. Okay. So um, let's go. So that's the tumor lysis syndrome. Okay. Now what else in this individual? So this, the final problem in this, this patient is they're also neutropenic uh, and febrile. So this patient with no obvious infection right now, just a fever, but is neutropenic and has acute leukemia, you know, this isn't someone you're not going to give antibiotics to. So the most likely organisms that are causing his fever, usually the gram-negative enterics that translocate in the gut in the setting of neutropenia, especially once you start giving chemotherapy. So this is someone that we would start on uh, broad-spectrum antibiotics with pseudomonal coverage. So your choices would be cefepime, uh, piptazo, miropenem, uh, uh, um, you know, drugs like ceftriaxone or ertapenem, um, would not be appropriate. They don't have pseudomonal coverage. Ceftazidine would also work. That has pseudomonal coverage. We typically use cefepime. Um, so we would start, we would get blood cultures, uh, uh, start them on cefepime. I usually reserve vancomycin only if they're really sick or if they have a, a, an a obvious MRSA infection, like a, a linearium with a, a clear cellulitis around it. But usually you can get away with just cefepime. Okay. So let's, this is the summary slide for this patient. Remember, we have this, we go back to the start here, 19-year-old male with febrile neutropenia, hyperleukocytosis, and tumor lysis syndrome. We've called hematology. They're going to figure out that diagnosis within a day. We suspect it's acute leukemia, either AML or ALL, okay? The flow cytometry will determine that diagnosis, and the molecular testing will determine definitive treatment, which will likely start within the next one to three days, okay? While the hematology service is doing that, we are making sure they don't have symptomatic leukocytosis, a hyperleukocytosis, uh, which is called leukostasis, and we are cytoreducing them with hydria, uh, plus or minus uh, leukophoresis if they need it and are that big of an emergency, 
okay? They also have um, tumor lysis syndrome as evident by the elevated uric acid, LDH, uh, and uh, hyperkalemia. And we are giving them aggressive hydration, monitoring their electrolytes serially. Um, we are treating, uh, uh, we are calling nephrology if the electrolytes get out of hand or the patient goes into vert renal failure. We are giving raspiracase if necessary. Uh, and then also potentially starting allopurinol, which again won't work immediately, uh, but will help lower the uh, uh, uric acid levels. And then finally, this patient has febrile neutropenia, uh, uh, which is likely due to a gram-negative bug uh, that's translocated through the gut. So they are getting broad-spectrum antibiotics, usually with uh, with pseudomonal coverage uh, like cefepime, and we are getting blood cultures. Okay, so all those things are happening simultaneously. And as the internist or resident taking care of this patient in the middle of the night. A lot of that really can be managed by you. Man, what I love if you called me up and all that was taken care of and you say, you know, Doc G, just, just get a flow and tell me what type of leukemia this is to start it up, okay? And, and I would be glad to do that. Of course, we'll always assist with this. So that is kind of the level of knowledge of what I would expect. And as you can see, acute leukemia is an emergency. Many different things can happen. Um, and, uh, you know, I would expect internist hospitalists to have this level of knowledge to start taking care of these patients. Um, and... Um, you know, these, th these diseases are potentially curative. And so it would be a shame to have the patient succumb to some of these acute complications. Uh, until next time, uh, this is Papa H. I hope you enjoyed this uh, educational lecture. The slides will be up uh, shortly. Thank you.